I have a hard time. I, every, every youth group I introduce the same way. I have a really hard time of thinking introductions that are anything other than what I do for youth group. It's just the way I think. So every time I introduce any sort of teaching in youth group, I ask a tricky question. It just came to my mind. That's how I'm thinking about it this morning too. So my, my tricky question for this morning is like, should church be an inclusive or exclusive place? Now, if I ask this to the high schoolers, I'd drag them over the coals and making them try to come up with one answer or another. But it's a, it's a hard question to answer um, because of the, we, we recognize every week we're, we're going to the law. We've been in Deuteronomy for months now. And week by week, we're seeing the same thing over and over again, that God is holy. We are unholy. And none of us deserve to be a part of his people in his presence because of his holiness. In that way, we see God's presence and God's people is completely and utterly exclusive. There's no one on planet earth that deserves to be in the presence of his holiness. That no one deserves to be in the assembly of his people because we are all unholy people. The law shows us that over and over and over again. Yet we know, because we are the church, because we do know the gospel, that there is inclusivity through Christ. We have been included in God's people. Everyone who is truly a part of his people, and I'm not just talking about people who walk in the door, I'm talking about all of us who are truly in Christ, who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That everyone who is in Christ knows that there's, it's not based on anything I do that has earned me a, a right to be a part of his people. That I am just as quote-unquote savable as the next person that there's, it's not by my own works and there's nothing I've done to earn that spot. Everyone on earth is equally as separated from God, equally in need of Christ, and equally granted that opportunity of belief in Christ through the gospel. But, so, so in that sense, the, the God's people is inclusive, right? There's, there's none, no one on planet earth who is more deserving of being in his people than the next person. But again, it's exclusive. There is one way, there is one truth, there is one life. When, in the holiness of God that we see in the law, in our inadequacy before God, we see that we need Christ, right? That, that is the only way. There's not many paths that lead to being truly entered in, uh, accepted into God's people. If you are in Christ, you are in God's people, in his assembly, but only in Christ. It's exclusive to that one way. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 14. So we've been in the book of Deuteronomy for a while. We're in the 23rd chapter. We've been preaching through it week by week. Um, and Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is writing his farewell address to the Israelites. He is standing on the edge of the promised land, looking in towards this, yeah, the promised land that God has given, knowing that he's not going to be able to enter in, but wanting to write a code of conduct, a, a way of life, for the Israelites, so that they could live according to God's law. And that's what Deuteronomy is about. And in this section of Deuteronomy, in the 23rd chapter, he's talking about what the assembly of God should look like. Which is interesting, because pretty much up until this point, the assembly of God 
has been used to refer to times when God met the Israelites like at Sinai or at Horeb. It's been backward looking at times where God has met with them. But Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land looking forward to the assembly of God. That there's going to be this new gathering of God's people in this promised land where they're, where they're going to gather and worship God. And he's talking about who should be in that gathering and who should not. And before we continue on, uh, like Mark gave last week, I want to give a forewarning this week. There's, this, this passage deals with crude topics. Um, and so, just beware of that uh, for, for the children in the room, for, for parents in the room. I'm not going to be crude or extra explicit on those topics. I'm just going to teach what is in the Word. But as a church that values gospel-centered expository preaching, we're going to come along sections of the Word that are going to deal with mature topics. The, the, and we want to lean into that as a church. We are dedicated to, to walking through the book of Deuteronomy and seeing what the whole counsel of God have to say to us. So we're in Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 14. Um, let me read this for us. It says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek the, their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor the Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal omission, then he shall go outside the camp, and he shall not come inside the camp. But when, the, when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. And you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn it back over and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This is the word of God. We have acknowledged this morning that God's people, God's presence, God's assembly is exclusive. There's one way through Christ. And I want to talk about that in regards to being God's holy presence that, that we gather in as his assembly and our unholiness in his presence. So let's talk about the Lord's assembly first. Uh, we're going to talk about the first eight verses here. When it talks about the assembly of the Lord, again, this is forward-looking to the promised land, to a place where God's people would gather to worship and to hear from Him. And this is, yeah, looking forward to the temple and the promised land. 
And he goes through, Moses goes through and excludes a, a number of people from this assembly. First of all, the eunuch is excluded. The, the man whose testicles have been crushed or who males, whose male organ is cut off shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. This is not something that happened in a skateboarding accident. This is those who have been like intentionally maimed their body because they were a pagan worshiper. They had maimed their body to become a eunuch, to be a part of this pagan worship. So their body was marked by idolatry. They had been a part of this idol-worshiping cult, and they were no longer, they had violated God's commands, and they, because their body was marked with this sin of idol worship, they were no longer allowed in the assembly. The next group that is excluded from the assembly of the Lord is illegitimate children. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. The forbidden union is kind of a vague description. could just be referring to children who are born out of wedlock. It could be referring next to this next section where it talks about Ammonites and Moabites. could just be referring to any union of a father and a mother that have... That where they've conceived a child in a way that's unlawful. That any of that generation for the ten, to the 10th generation would be excluded. And when it says to the 10th generation, that's very harsh. That means forever. And we can see that just by the next passage, right? It's used, Moses uses it in that way. He says that the, the Moabite and the Ammonite are cut off to the 10th generation. And that they wouldn't be able to come in forever. So there's exclusion of these children born of illegitimate conception forever. God's presence is holy and they are marked like that and they are excluded forever. The Ammonite and the Moabite. It brings up uh, the, the encounters that the Israelites had with the Ammonites and the Moabites through the book of Numbers where they didn't meet them with water and with food when the Israelites were in need. And not only did they not meet them, but they excluded them, or not they excluded them, they cursed them from, uh, with, with Balaam. They tried to harm God's people and to defy God's plans, but God was in control, God had a way, and he turned that blessing uh, that curse into a blessing for the Israelite people. But because the Ammonites and the Moabites had cursed Israel, because they had excluded, or because they hadn't taken care of them, they were to be excluded to the 10th generation forever from the assembly of the Lord. Not only that, but not just an exclusion from the assembly of the Lord, but you were never to seek their peace or their prosperity all their days. That means in no way should you be looking out or making relationships for Ammonites or Moabites because of that sin. You are to have a separate relationship from them. God's presence is holy and he's remembering the sin of the Ammonites and the Moabites and he excludes them from his assembly. Then he goes on to talk about the Edomite and the Egyptian. The Edomite would have been descendants of Esau, so He's less harsh. Even though they were, not, they were enemies of Israel, he says you can show some grace to the Edomites because of Esau's sake. He's part of Abraham's family. He's your brother, so we can show grace to them. Or the Egyptian, he remembers the Egyptians when Jacob's family was starving in the famine. He says you can show some grace to them. Only the third generation are they excluded to. Still harsh, right? 
But God's presence is holy. They were excluded for three generations because of their sin. This makes us feel uncomfortable when we read this. There's all, there's, I'm sure there's all sorts of questions that are going through your mind about fairness. How can God judge people for not their sin, but their ancestors' sin? That seems unfair to us, but we have to remember this too. When, whenever we approach the law, when there's discrepancies between how I feel and what the law says, you should not assume that you are right and that the law is wrong. You should assume that God is right and if you feel uncomfortable with what is written in the law, your heart is wrong. You are not holy. Our uncomfortableness that we feel when we look at the law is because we are not holy like God. And generation, lineage matters to God, right? We can see that. Where it might seem unfair to talk about people being cursed because of their grandparents. Let me ask you this. What's happened to every descendant of Adam? Every single person who is descended from Adam, every one of them has a sin nature. And has, sin, has the same sinful condition as Adam. That heritage of sin has been passed on. And God, seeing these sins of the Moabites, the Ammonites, seeing these sins of these illegitimate unions, He's saying that same sin is present in your lineage. And so because of that lineage, you're going to be cut off. God, it, and, and even for these eunuchs, you can think of, maybe you can imagine a scenario in your mind where a man had once been a pagan worshiper, but then had come to encounter the Israelites and said, I want to worship God. But because he had marked his body in this way, now he could no longer be a part of the assembly. You just might say that's harsh. To God, it's not as though passage of time removes sins. It's not like, oh, that sin was a very long time ago. How can you, God hold that against me? God doesn't just let bygones be bygones. He is fully righteous. That, that he remembers sins for ten generations. He is completely and utterly perfect and holy and no mark of sin can ever come close to him. His presence is exclusive. Another reason we're probably uncomfortable when we see passages like this is because we see in our minds, just straight from reading the passage, it would seem as though there's specific groups of people that are just excluded and then there's other people who are included in this. But we need to zoom back out and remember the full Bible and what all the Bible has to say on the law. Right? If you are, in fact, I would prescribe this to a lot of you. If you're having a hard time approaching the law every Sunday as we're going into Deuteronomy, read Romans 3 every week before you go in. Romans 3 shows us that those who are under the law and those who are outside of the law, there's no advantage to the Jew or to the Greek. They are both fully separated because of sin. The, some of us are condemned from outside of the law 
not being a Jew, not being able to enter in. The Moabite, the Ammonite, the eunuch, those who are from an illegitimate union, those are all excluded from the law and excluded from God's people by the law. But then you look at the Israelites. They are called, in order to live in God's presence and to be his people and to be in his assembly, they are called to follow all of the law themselves and to live in accordance to all of God's law. And what we see from Scripture is that the law shows us how sinful we are. So how, how far we have fallen. Both the Jew and the Moabite and the Ammonite and everyone is excluded from being in God's presence. Because we are sinful and He is completely holy if it's not for the cross. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 says this. I think there's a slide. Is there a slide? Yes, perfect. Therefore... Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's everyone who's born outside of the law. Separated from God because of your heritage. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has made us both one, both being the Jew and the Gentile. He has made them both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create, in him, might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. We are all a part of the household of God. The dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. There's no under the law or outside of the law. There is just those of us who are in Christ. That is the exclusivity of God's people. And the whole Bible talks about this, right? It's, this is the promise of God that was intended from the beginning. We know this when we read Abraham, when God blesses him. He says, through you all nations on earth will be blessed. The Ammonite and the Moabite are blessed through Christ. In Isaiah 50, 56, 3 through 8, it's, it's talking specifically about the people who are excluded in this passage. And he talks about the foreigner. He says, The foreigner shall no longer say that they are far off and strangers, but that they are God's people. He says that the eunuch will have a, a legacy that's greater than that of sons or daughters. And that, that God's house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Everyone has been granted access through Christ. But it is through Christ. That is our definition of what creates this unity. Think about this. Like every time we take communion together, what are we expressing? The thing that unites you and I is that Christ's blood was shed for me and for you. 
I think about that every time I take communion with you all. I look around and I say, what an awesome expression to look at all these brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm united by this with. This is the substance of my unity with them. That Christ's body was broken for me and for you and for all of us. That his blood was shed out for you and for me. And even looking forward now, right now, with this being Palm Sunday, we're looking forward to Good Friday. We're looking forward by staring into the law and seeing our inadequacy and an inability to come into God's presence. But we're looking forward knowing that Friday we celebrate Christ dying on the cross. His blood being shed for me. His body being broken for me. And that being what unites us with God. It's not just that we're justified before God too. We are reconciled and in right relationship with God. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's, that's the next section. But I do want to take more time and apply what we have here that, that if we understand our unity as only being through the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, then we don't, we, this, this group, this unity, this expression of Christ's church here locally at CCC should not be one primarily of social preferences or like-mindedness on all the rest of the things of the world. We are united. We should be a bunch of different people from different walks of life with different histories all united in the same one thing. That should be what binds us together. When we come together in friendship and community and worship together, that's the substance of what brings us together. That's our unity. And if which is true. This is true. I'll say if, but we're with the assumption. If Christ's body has really torn down all the dividing wall of hostility and all people from all places have been granted access through Christ, then it's only through Christ that they have access. We want that exclusive, that one way, that one truth to be known to the ends of the earth. We want God's assembly to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And that's more than just bringing the gospel to those who haven't heard. We send missionaries out to the far reaches of the world, not just so that people would hear the gospel and know Christ, but that there would be an expression of God's assembly in all places on earth. We want to plant churches. We want to see people gathering together as God's people in all corners of the world because that's what the Bible says is the outpour, like the, the fulfillment of these promises. That's how the promise of Abraham is fulfilled is that God's people worship from every tribe and tongue and nation. If the gospel is the only qualifier for us to have right relationship with God, then we should want all types of people everywhere to have access to Christ and to assemble together and worship Him. Let's talk about cleanliness in the camp. Verses 9 through 14. It's interesting. There's obviously some crude topics talked about in this passage. Nocturnal emission and pooping. <laughs> like, and you read commentaries about what those represent. And I'm not going to share what they say. But I, I think really when it boils down to it, what it's talking about in these war camps of the Israelites is that gross things happen, Right? You get unclean. And when you're unclean, try to be clean. Try to act cleanly. If you have a nocturnal mission, you need to go outside of the camp 
You need to take a bath, and you can come back later that night. If you have to go to the bathroom, don't do it in the middle of the camp. There's a specific place to go. Go do it there, dig a hole, go to the bathroom, cover it back up. So how can we apply this to our relationship? How does this relate with our relationship with God? Look at verse 14. It says, The reason they're supposed to do all this is because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up or to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy. Because God is holy, right? We've talked about this. And even in verse 9, it says, when you are encamped against your enemies, it says, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. This, these cleanliness standards, the, the Israelites had cleanliness standards for every area of life, how to handle gross things in every area of life, and that was no different in the war camp. But those cleanliness standards represented much more than just being physically clean. We're going through the book of Mark in youth group, so I think in terms of Mark a lot. I make a lot of Mark references, but I think of Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees in this passage, and he's arguing about clean and unclean food. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man. And then Jesus gets even more clear with the analogy he's trying to make. He says, Food goes into the body, is digested, and is expelled. What he's talking about, the analogy he's making there, is what's unclean about a person isn't the food that he's eating, but it's how the food comes out of a person that makes them unclean. Kind of similar to what we're talking about this morning. Physical uncleanliness because of poop. But, but then Jesus transitions. He makes that physical analogy into, he, he shows the spiritual connection. He says, for from within the heart of a man comes every evil thing. And he says, from within the heart of man come sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Every evil thing comes from within the heart of a man. So when we see these physical uncleanlinesses of ourselves, like that humans can be gross and unclean, it should show us the uncleanliness of our heart. That's the... That's how God sees your uncleanliness of your heart. As this gross, disgusting analogies that we see here of physical uncleanliness in the camp. God sees your sin as gross or grosser than all of this physical uncleanliness. It needs to be dealt with because it's disgusting. It's revolting. So how do they deal with what's unclean? You take a bath or you bury it. You try to wash it off. You try to hide it. You get it out of sight. It's not simply just, just okay, this acknowledging this is gross. It's like you've got to hide and get rid of this stuff because it's gross. And the word here at the end in verse 14 when it says, so that he might not see any indecent thing among you and turn away. Indecent is nakedness. The, the, like any shameful or nakedness thing among you. That, that word takes me back to Genesis chapter 3 and to the fall, right? That Adam and Eve lived naked and unashamed before God. Their nakedness was not their problem. And they were in a completely perfect, sinless garden in unity with God 
until they sin, until chapter 3 when the serpent, the serpent tempts them and they fall and their immediate response, what do they do? Is to hide, to cover up. They're gross. They're ashamed. They don't want God to see their nakedness anymore. So this passage here, this is not just talking about dealing with gross things. It's about dealing with shameful things. Our, the shamefulness of these gross things and the shamefulness of our own sin. Our sin isn't just bad, it's shameful. And what is shame? What is shame? There's, I want to I think of shame in a few different categories, but I, I want to clarify here, I just want to make this clear, that I don't think that nocturnal emissions or pooping are sinful. Like shame is attached to our sin, but those things are just not, those are bodily things that happen. But shame is, and, and there's other things, like you're all wearing clothes this morning, right? It's not shameful, it's not sinful for you to take a shower, but you take a shower in private because your nakedness makes you ashamed. You go to the bathroom in private because that makes, that's shameful, but those aren't wrong things. But shame is also attached to sin. That's another category. I want us to think about shame as attached to sin. That it severs and breaks relationships. This is a definition. I, some of you are friends with me on Facebook. I asked a question, and I found this really good definition from a friend. Uh, this, is, this is from a book called When Striving Cease by Ruth Cho Simmons. And this is the only quote I know from the book. So it says this. Shame isn't just feeling unworthy over something you should or shouldn't have done, but rather the nagging feeling that no matter what you do or don't do, you'll never get it right. Not enough. Forever lacking. Fundamentally incapable of being what, who others expect or who you'll be, or, or how you'll be. So, in our lives, we experience that like, when you disappoint your parents, kids, and you don't want them to know what you've done, you try to hide and cover up something bad you've done, that's shame. When you feel like, my, man, my parents don't like me because I just did this wrong thing, that's shame. Shame is when you're struggling with sin, but not confessing it to anyone. Because if you, you know that if they knew how gross your heart really was, if they really knew how bad you truly were, it would destroy your relationship. They would reject you. Shame is a home that's broken because of adultery. Because you know you could never face your family the same way after the things you've done. We understand shame and to a degree... No, not to a degree. Every single one of us deals with shame. Specifically, shame in our relationship with God. When we see disgusting sin in the light of God's blazing holiness, there should be a sense of shame. Unlike any other, we are not enough. We are forever lacking. We are fundamentally incapable of, God, of being who God made you to be. But our shame was paid for on the cross. Isaiah 53, 
4 through 6 says this. Surely he has borne our griefs, our shame, and carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on, on him the iniquity of us all. Or Hebrews 12.3 it says, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, not just the punishment of the guilt, but despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. At the cross, Jesus bore not only our guilt, but our shame. He was rejected by the Father, and we are accepted by the Father. We have the honor of Christ because He took away our shame. And we need this. Oh man, do we need this. Every, every day, every hour, this is what we gather around. This is why we have a cross mounted up here behind us so that we can look back and we can, we can remember together this Sunday. We can remember together as God's people. We can look back at your week and you can feel your unworthiness. Man, your sin has made you unworthy of being in God's presence. You shouldn't be granted to be in God's people this morning. When you worship and sing, you are a person of unclean lips. But that's not where we're at anymore. You do not need to be ashamed before God. Every time we feel shame, we have to look back to the cross and remember that shame has been dealt with. You are in right relationship with God. You have been brought close and loved. That shame is gone. It's not just that he's paid for our guilt. He's reconciled us. We have right relationship with God. We don't have to hide our disgusting, gross shame. We go and confess our sins before the Father and are received and honored as Christ was. So how does this affect our lives as believers? Our gross behavior. We look at our gross behavior that once separated from God. That once was this indecency that would make him leave the camp. Our gross disgustingness of our human selves. Our sin. When we see that gross sin in our lives, we should, we should run from that. We should hate that. We should reject that. We should remember, look back to our former life when we weren't reconciled to God. And remember, that was what separated me from God. Just because God has made you in right relationship and giving you honor in Christ doesn't mean you should just have a license to sin and feel the lack of shame doesn't just give you the automatic unconsequence of sin. Like we look, now that we are in a right relationship with God, we should live like you're in a right relationship with God. You should live as holy people, made clean, hateful of your former sin. Hateful of sin that still creeps into your life. We should reject it. And as people who are free and have this new identity, for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ and are free from the shame and now made in right relationship, you know, we don't need a bath, but the bath shows that the baptism, our baptism shows that we've been made clean. Like, that's the first step. 
that believers should take in obedience. If you are in a right relationship with God, believe in Him, and that you're free from that shame, and your, your life is marked with that, you should express that in baptism. That's like a wedding is the first picture of a, a relationship that's going to last forever. Baptism is the first picture of your relationship with God that will last forever. This right relationship with God and identification with Christ having been washed, right? As First Peter says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clean conscience. We have a clean conscience with God and we want to represent that in baptism. We shouldn't hide our sin. For those of, if, if you're being honest with yourself this morning and you're, and you're feeling sin and shame in your life, if you're understanding that there is stuff that you're concealing, sin that you're concealing in your life, that you want to keep hidden before God, hidden before others, I would ask you to confess your sin. Because... Living in covering up your sin and bearing your sin and trying to hide it from God is doubting what Jesus really accomplished on the cross. If you truly have confidence in that Jesus has made you right before God, you don't need to hide. You don't need to be in shame before Him. You can confess your sin to Him. You can confess your sins to your brothers and sisters. Not give, not give sin the protection of hiding in the dark, but expose it to the light and walk in repentance and in this right relationship with God. She confess our sins to one another. And when others confess our sin, confess sin to us, we, we don't need to give them our release from shame. It's not just simply, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody does that. Everybody's, uh, you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to be ashamed in front of me. I get you. I understand you. We don't need just each other's release from shame. We need to be pointed to the cross. Our, our primary goal when people are confessing their sin to us shouldn't be just to make them feel better between us and them. Like it, the, our, the primary relationship we're worrying about is not just that we feel comfortable with each other, but that that person is walking in right relationship with God. So we need to be pointing them to the true grace that they need. When someone confesses sins to us, make sure that they are looking up at the cross and seeing Jesus and saying, that shame and that disconnect that you feel before your God, Jesus has absorbed it fully. You need to be living in light of that. It can be hard to read the law. It can be hard over and over again to see how we don't measure up to God's holiness. God is so extremely holy and separate from sin and we are utterly disgusting and covered in it. But if we stop there, if that's, how we, that's all we see, the law is not, that's not powerful to transform us. But as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, if we look into the law and we see Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory for next to the next. When we look into the holiness of God and our inability and look right past it and see Christ on the cross paying for our sins and transforming our lives, we are transformed. I hope we can all experience that transformation and that freedom that we have in Christ this morning. As we look forward to Good Friday this Friday and to Easter next Sunday, we can feel the new life and the freedom that we have in Christ based on what He's done. Let me pray.
as we invite the worship team to come up. God, uh, thank you for uniting us in Jesus. Thank you that we share in this unity together as God's people. Thank you for removing our shame. God, I pray for transformation to happen, that there would be freedom from sin, that there would be freedom from bonds to shame, that there would be that there would be faith in Christ and that there's, if there's anyone here who is outside of your people that feels disconnected and is hiding their shame by validating their sin, God, I, I pray that they would see their need to be made holy and in right relationship with you and that they don't have to be perfect on their own but that they can find freedom in Christ, Lord. Please transform hearts of those who aren't a part of your people this morning. And uh, Lord, we're, we're anticipating, we're looking forward to celebrating next week um, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what we celebrate every week. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would celebrate that now in worship. We pray these things in your name. Amen.